We can talk about anything you want as Jayflons is ignorant. Welcome to Jayflons is Ignorance. This is episode 40, Train Derailments with Chris Hoover. Um, we're going to talk about the East Palestine, Ohio disaster that happened in, or started on February 3rd, 2023. And... Uh, the fallout of that and how trains work and how they don't work and how they fail to work and uh, what Chris knows because he works in the industry. Uh, before we get to that, a couple notes. Um, unfortunately, since the last episode that I published, um, our friend from episode 13, his name is Frank Tabor, and we did an episode back in 2015 about adventure touring where Frank and friends rode a motorcycle from the tip of Alaska down to the tip of South America and back on several times. And that's a hour 36 minute interview that I did with Frank Tabor. And I was really appreciative of him taking the time to record that with me. And that was really great. And unfortunately, um, Frank has passed away in the last month, which is really sad. And, um, I feel really bad for his family and, uh, I don't know what to say other than it's it's comforting to me to <clears throat> hear his voice after he's gone. So I really like the fact that I have this recording of him telling all these crazy adventurous stories uh, from eight years ago. So if you want to go back in the podcast feed and listen to episode 13, Adventure Touring with Frank Tabor is a... It's a episode that I treasure, and I hope you like it too. So we will miss Frank, and I'm, I feel bad for his family, and it's a very sad thing. So um, another point of business is that we now have a voicemail set up for the podcast. If you want to call in and leave a voicemail, we might play your voicemail on air, so to speak. So if you would like to call in, you can now call in and leave us a message telling us how much you hate the show or love the show or you've listened to the show or you've never heard the show or whatever you want to say, feel free. That phone number is 402-577-0117. Again, 402-577-0117. Leave any message you want there, and we might play it on the air. So don't say anything on there you don't want played on the air. <laughs> Welcome to Jay Flance's Ignorance. This is episode 40. Wow, big round number. It's not 50, but, you know, some pressure with episode 40. And I'm once again here with Chris Hoover, and this time we're going to talk about train derailments, because I have many questions, and you might know things. <laughs> and if you don't know things, that's fine. Just say so, and I'll forgive you eventually. So the Ohio train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, this was, happened on February 3rd, and we're recording on March 15th or something, middle of March, so six weeks ago or something. I was trying to understand, reading the NTSB report, the initial, like the full NTSB, or sorry, it's not NTSB, right? It's the RTB or something? Rail, what is it? Rail? The NTSB. Oh, it is the NTSB. Yeah. That does the investigation? Yeah. But then the Rail Commission something is the... It's not the FAA, it's the R, what? Oh, the FRA. The, the FRA. Federal, yeah, the Federal Railroad Administration. Okay, but the FRA doesn't do the investigations. NTSB does accident investigations? Yeah. 
Okay. So I was reading the NTSB initial report. The final report comes out in like two years or something, right? But the initial report, and then I asked you a few questions about it. And what I'm really trying to understand is that the video that was shot, I don't know if you've seen this video clip, but there was security camera footage of the train going past like 10 miles before it derailed. Oh, yeah. And it's on fire. It goes by and it's like wicked on fire. Like <laughs> it's yeah. in the middle of the night. So it's not surprising that like, you know, the heat is bright, but it is like bouge, like rolling past. And you only see it for like a second and a half, but it is clearly like in, in bad shape. And my understanding of the reading of the NTSB initial report is that the safety systems that detect those things and what those are called hot box detectors. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Hot box or hot bearing detectors. Okay. So these these things sit next to the track and they're optically or thermally, I don't know if they're sensing temperature or they're, they're looking at it with cameras or what, but they the whole point of those systems is that if the the bearing of a axle of a train car gets beyond 800 degrees or whatever the accepted running temperature is, that those things alarm and the the conductors, conductors, engineers what are they called? The guys running the trains? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I think the, the one that, you know, I should probably know the answer to that one. <laughs> maybe. I don't like, I think I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe because uh, I think there, there is conductors and there's engineers and uh, one of them drives the train and one like has authority over the train. So they do have different tasks, I think. Um, but either way there's, yeah, the operator of the train going is notified like in real time, right? Like mm-hmm. when, so the trail, the train's two miles long, but it's a radio signal that the hot box detector, hot, whatever axle that that thing fires a radio signal, right? Which mm-hmm. alarms in the, the front locomotive where the drive is happening. Mm-hmm. Correct. And when that happens, the policy is to stop the train. Right. But in the NTSB report, they didn't say that there was any problem with any of the detectors. Like these, these things are only every 20 miles or whatever, depending on how dense and complicated the, the patterns are. Mm-hmm. But I was really surprised that it could be that on fire 10 miles away from where it eventually derailed. And they'd never got that a, a signal until they stopped it. And when they tried to stop it and all the train cars, the brakes lock up, right? It's like a gas release system is what I was seeing on YouTube where – Basically, at the speed of sound across the two miles, all the cars lose pressure that's keeping the brakes open, right? Mm-hmm. And so the brakes all stop. So it takes like seven seconds or whatever for the entire train to start braking simultaneously. But that process of that emergency stop, um, some like either something was already derailed or the stopping caused the derailment. But I was trying to figure out, well... If the if the guys driving the train did nothing wrong, which was my reading of the NTSB report, and the safety equipment that was required was there, and they didn't detect anything, then I'm trying to figure out what went wrong, or if nothing went wrong by the standards of <laughs> safety for trains. So, like, I think you told me a couple months ago that trains derail intentionally quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Um. And I don't remember why you said they do that, but a train derailment happens when X, Y, or Z happens as a procedure. And it's not the end of the world. It's not, 
even a big deal? Is that what you said? No, most of the time they're pretty innocuous events that don't really matter. And, and they, we do in so we actually have equipment that is that intentionally derails a train. And and there's various places where these need to need to be placed in order so you have like a main lines of track and then you have tracks that are considered other than main line and then you have siding tracks so main line is just meant to be uh the connection points uh, i guess you could say like the connection points between cities or like main meeting points or main critical points and on those main lines i mean you can have speeds um up to 70 miles per hour for freight and that's pretty fast um on the high speed rail on our on the Union Pacific Springs Springfield sub which basically goes from Chicago to St. Louis um i i believe that we can run at 120 miles per hour for passenger trains so the idea behind a, an intentional derail is like let's say you have a yard that's adjacent to the main line and they're building trains on this yard and let's say some accident happens uh, a, a car gets away at the same time a train is going 70 miles per hour down the main line. Mm-hmm. So you'll we'll have a derail that protects the main line from an accidental stray car. So it's lined to derail deep by default. And that tr- that car that gets away will just go out onto the derail instead of hitting a 70 mile per hour train that's on the main line. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's not going fast, and it, it it just it just goes out onto the dirt or whatever. They just had, they, I mean, it it's a pain for the people that work because then they got to put it back on the rail, you know. With um, and but nothing's gonna blow up or <laughs> spill. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's really and and that's not even the only thing, you know. Like we have um, if we have certain speeds on our main line, and let's say we have like a meeting of two railroads. Um, at the other railroad is not PTC and our speed's like over, uh, 40, then we have to have derails on our track, on their tracks for the same reason, because we're going really fast and their speeds are pretty slow anyway. And we don't want them to slam into the side of a train that's going really fast and totally, uh, mess up a, a train that's on the main line. So it, it, it's, it's just a matter of kind of intentionally taking a rail, a train off the track and diverting it away from a more sensitive area. And that could be uh, bridges over rivers, uh, like a lift span bridge or swing bridge or um, derails kind of protect all of those critical pieces of equipment that if they hit them or break the rules, you could say, and go past a critical point, they don't cause more damage. Yeah. So, so the routing infrastructure is such that even by default in some conditions is what I think you were saying is that look, cars are never supposed to hit these things, but it's way better that they hit these things and derail than they go somewhere that's far more dangerous for them to go. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the routing system, which is the uh, thousands of miles of track, there are the, the switches will often be in a derail position because mm-hmm. you're never supposed to be there. But if you are there, the safest thing we can do is derail the train. <laughs> right. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
and axles wear out and get mm-hmm. hot all the time, I assume, because there's, you know, yeah, what, I don't know, 100,000 rail cars on the tracks right now rolling around the country. And they're going to fail. You know, you do your best with inspections and maintenance that you can, but they're still going to fail. So the hot box detectors go off and the the guys running the train get the radio signal and the train stops automatically. And usually it doesn't derail, right? Usually what happens is, oh, crap, okay, we got to come out and we got to replace a bearing in the field, uh, an axle, right? Pretty much, yeah. So they got to disconnect it, I assume, and then pick up the car in the middle enough to get the, you know, and replace the, I, I assume they do that all on the line. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, or they just or they just swap out the the rail car. They they just move the cargo over to a separate rail car, and then they could just um push that uh, one into the ditch and leave it there. <laughs> 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 uh, well, I, and a lot of that stuff does have like a standard like uh, maintenance procedure. I, I guess if they could change the wheel bearing, they they would. Um, yeah, this thing I was watching on YouTube said that. The the current ball bearing wheel bearings are a thousand times better than the previous generation where they were constantly pumping oil in there. <laughs> like oh. you were constantly putting pressurized oil in there. And that was a very leaky situation hmm. that didn't last very long. And the maintenance was way higher. The, the total cost of ownership of the maintenance was way higher than the current modern ball bearing yeah. style rail things. So, so if, if the, de- if the equipment was working and the guys did what they were supposed to do, then how is it even possible that East Palestine, Ohio happened? Like that's what I don't understand. Well, I, I it's kind of hard to make a judgment call since they, we don't have the final report, but um, I, I think what railroads do generally is they try to establish a, a, a system that catches 99.9% of all bad cases. Mm-hmm. So it, it looks like in this particular case, the first the three alarms, or there was three in the NTSB. The first two were 10 miles per, apart. The, the alarm saying that the, the axle was too hot? Um, so the first one, let's see, where does it say that in here? Because I only read like the first five pages, I thought, of the initial NTSB. But my understanding of the report was that there was – that no one did anything wrong. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like surely something went wrong. Okay. So at the first one at mile post 80 basically, it was 38 degrees Fahrenheit above ambient. And the train passed the next hot box detector at 69 – or 70, mile post 70. So – 10 miles later, the bearings recorded temperature was 103 degrees above Fahrenheit. And so then, what, what temp above are they supposed to hit the brakes? Um, well, they're supposed to hit the brakes between 170 and 200 and inspect it. Fahrenheit above ambient. You're right. And above 200, they just set the car out. They hit the brakes and set the car out. When you say set the car out, how do you do that without a crane? Like you, have, you need heavy equipment to move one a car in the middle of a two mile. Well, there's lots of ways to do that, but generally, very periodic within rail, like a segment of rail. There's maybe like a hand throw switch, and uh, like a, a set out track that's used to even just store equipment. You, you know, because they're always doing maintenance on the tracks and 
Um, so they would basically just pull over uh, close to one of these set out tracks or siding and, and set the car on there for somebody to come and take care of it later. How do you set the car on there? If it's like, if it's a two mile train, oh, they just break in the front. They just break the train. So like they'll stop like at the, at the, uh, uh, before the switch, right. Mm-hmm. They'll break the train at the car behind where they want to move. Mm-hmm. And they'll move forward past the switch or if they're already past it, they'll back up or whatever. Um, and then with the, cause once they go past the switch, the last car that they want to drop off is the last car. They'll throw the switch reverse and then they back back in, detach that car, go back out onto the main line, and then go back up and meet up with the rest of the train. Oh, okay. So it's not even a, a side. What'd you call it? A side? Siding. Siding. Okay. Yeah. So a siding is a thing that, um, breaks off from the main line, goes mm-hmm. for a while and then reconnects. That's yeah. a siding that connects on both ends. Yeah. But one of these things you're saying is just like a little parking garage where you can just shove a couple trains, train cars worth of yeah. whatever. Yeah. And they have, they have specific rules that they have to follow too. You know, like they, you can't just leave unattended cars for places for long periods of time. I mean, they have actually portable derails, so they probably set it out on the track, set the brake, and then they would actually put some portable derails up. Um, I mean, they do a lot of different things. And then, like, protect. shove it onto the dirt? No. Oh. No, um, they do, so, like, it's a portable. So, like, you have, like, uh, the, like, uh, split point derails that are that look just like a regular switch, but it's two rails just going into nothing. And then they have, like, these pieces of equipment that basically sit on top of the rail, and and they, they're they just portable derail devices. In fact, uh, I think they tried to use them on... Do uh, you remember... Did you ever watch that train show with uh, Denzel Washington? Oh, man. Well, I can't remember what that was called. But it's basically about a, a train that... Um, it was a runaway train, and it was a freight train. And uh, somebody like... Uh, uh, wanted to move it forward and he actually, I, I don't know if he, I can't remember if he accidentally bumped the throttle, but he basically made it wide open and he got off the train to do something thinking that he'd be able to catch back up to the train on foot, but he couldn't. <laughs> okay. Cause he didn't realize that he had the throttle wide open. Oh yeah. 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 yeah so I mean, he thought like, he was idling it. Yeah. It's not like it's a sports car. It's like he thought he was moving it forward just a little bit, you know, and, and then he gets back off, does his thing, and by then the train's going too fast for him to get it back on it. And it's do just they have a, do they have kill? Like, can you guys kill them electronically from central headquarters nowadays or whatever? Well, PTC would shut them down now. PTC is a positive train control. So, well, at least if it was a PTC subdivision. So but, that's a signal that you fire to the engine, or you fire it to the tracks, or what do you? Um, it's basically a. How could you describe it? It's basically a kind of a protective overlay on top of the protective overlay <laughs> that protects against mistakes or maybe the train crew is not paying attention. So and and it forces a train to comply with the signals. So like let's say you're you're going on green signals, you you're going wide open, seventy miles per hour, fifty or whatever the speed limit is. And the next signal that you see is like a flashing yellow, which on 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 our railroad, it, it basically means you have to uh, be prepared to stop at sec, uh, second signal, and you have to immediately reduce to 40 miles per hour, no matter what speed you're at. Mm-hmm. So let's say you pass that, and you're not paying attention, you're texting on your phone or whatever, and you're just sitting there going 70. The, 
PTC will be like, hey, I'm warning you, you need to start slowing down. <laughs> and if they if they don't comply, uh, the computer system will force the train to comply. The next signal that they come up to would be a yellow, which means be prepared to stop at the next signal, which should be a red, uh, if it, everything is standard. And uh, immediately reduce to 30 if you're not to 30. Is this all based on radio or cell towers or satellites or what? It's ba- it, it is uh, it just it's kind of a wide network of communications. Um, so the train's constantly saying, "Hey, I'm going I'm going 85 miles an hour," and the PTC can say, uh, "Yeah, knock it off." Yeah, it's basically a mixture of onboard files and back office files that all communicate together uh, based upon where the train is and the the make the train makeup of the train. Like the the system knows how long it would take a train to stop, so if it knows it's coming up on a a red signal that it has to stop at, mm-hmm. and it knows when the train has to start braking in order to comply and stop before that signal, and it'll warn the train crews. It'll be like, "Hey, you need to be braking right now," and you know they're texting whatever, and and they don't do it, then it'll force them to comply, and and they don't want to do that because it puts the train into a situation called an emergency braking application which is really bad. Emergency braking applications can actually cause derailment. And they tear up the equipment. Have you ever been like a... Because that's, that's maximum braking across every car. Right. Train, right? Yeah. And and I, I don't know if this is the only thing that causes it, emergency braking, air quote. But if you've ever like been standing next to a train that's on railroad tracks, sometimes you'll be, the train will be like really silent. Like, uh, if you were on the tracks doing some work and if, if you didn't see it, like it could hit you because the train is, the the wheels are smooth. The track is smooth. It's just super quiet. But most of the time you'll, you'll hear this, don't, 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 you know, like this pounding on the rail as the train goes by. Mm-hmm. And th- that's either one of two things, either they're hitting insulated joints or they're hitting flat spots in the wheels. Uh, because there's been like an emergency application or something, and the, and the train is, um, basically worn a flat spot on to, on the wheels for some reason or another. Oh, and in one emergency braking event, you could screw up hundreds of wheels. Oh yeah, and and I'm not sure which would take days to repair and yeah, they, so they just, or whatever. They so they just leave it, you know, and then the train's all noisy and you hear the thumps and <laughs> and like uh, so I'm not sure if that's, that's the only expensive reason. Expensive as hell. A, a two mile train and every single wheel is ground and you gotta oh my god yeah it's it can be a pretty big disaster but so I, so they, I, they they passed oh sorry go ahead i can't remember what why we started talking about that well so you said they passed the hot box and it said hey it's a little bit higher but not the threshold of breaking oh yeah or not even the threshold where they were supposed to like stop and check it out right and then they passed another one and it was even higher but still not high enough that they were supposed to stop and check it out yeah right right and then, and then, so th- those first two were ten miles away. Uh-huh. The third one that read really high, which was the two hundred and fifty degrees over. Let's see what was it? It was uh, two hundred and fifty three degrees above ambient. Uh-huh. Was twenty miles later. So it was first two were ten. And the second one was twenty. So these things are usually strategically placed um, before you roll into a town or something. I would think. Yeah, yeah, or or they're placed at a you know a place where you so like if it gives you the alarm, you know you, you want to have a place to be able to set the car out, right? 
Yeah. It, it wouldn't make sense to give it to you like right before a bunch of straight track. <laughs> you can't set the car out. Right. Mm. So they're, they're usually strategically placed like that. Now I, I can't really say for NS here. Um, but in that 20 miles, you know, it went up. See, what did it go up? It went from 103 degrees Fahrenheit above ambient to 153. So the safest thing to do when you cross that 140 degree threshold is to emergency break the whole train. That's the safest thing to do. No. Um, so, and I don't think that this is in the report or not. I think that this is uh, what I'm about to say was basically from NTSB agents that maybe spoke publicly about it. But um, the train, when it went past the third one uh, that was telling it to stop, mm -hmm. it was already breaking because it was coming up on a signal that they needed to break for. I think, and and this is total speculation, you, you know, based upon the videos that I've seen of the train car being on fire, I would have, I, I would just assume that the actual completely failed. And, and that, that it, in and of itself is what derailed the train. But I, I don't know. And we won't know until the NTSB report comes, you know, comes out officially that says, because, you know, they did say that they took, you know, the axle uh, back, they took uh, the bearings back, they took the, you know, they, they took all of these cars that were involved that they think caused the accident. They took them back to do a very thorough investigation to determine what caused the derailment. The, the NTSB took the parts for metallurgy in a lab yeah. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would imagine the actual braking combined with this could have been the problem. I mean, it could have already started to derail. I mean, who knows? And so when, when it spikes that much temperature where it's going to melt, like, I don't know what the melting temperature of steel is. It's <laughs> seven. I thought it was a lot higher than that, but would more frequent hotbox detectors have made this disaster not happen then? Well, if, it would be hard to say that having one 10 miles previously wouldn't have helped. I, I think it would have helped. But whether or not it was wise to put one there before this event, like it's easy to look at things in retrospect mm -hmm. uh, and say, um, yeah, they should have had one 10 miles previously. <laughs> but I, at the same time, like I've said, we derail trains intentionally all the time. We have accidental derailments that cause wrecks and 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 lost equipment. Um, uh, part of PTC, the positive train control, is that it always has to be on tracks um, that continuously carry hazardous materials, right? M my point is, is that this hazardous material that had an accident on a rail, if it wasn't on the rail, it would have been on a semi truck on I 80 going 70 miles per hour down the interstate. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, having this stuff on the rail is the safest place for it. And I, I think that a lot of times we, you know, I was actually talking to my mom the other day because I was talking about how I was raised and <laughs> compared to like how children are today. We're about the same age, right? I mean, 75. 
Yeah. So, you, I mean, you're just a couple years older than me. I was looking at, it was part of a book I was reading. They were they were talking about uh, a checklist to see if you were ready to be in the kindergarten. I think it was like a 1979 checklist. And one of the checklist items was, uh, can your child be trusted to walk uh, with, uh, you know, three or four blocks away from your house unsupervised and be able to find their way back home? And there were some other things in there. And then it compared it, contrasted it to one that was today. And, and there was no responsibility on the child at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, I, I, I guess where I'm going with that is that we kind of, when I was talking to my mom, uh, she was like, well, because it, it was actually more dangerous than when we were kids, <laughs> but we were walking all over the place by ourselves, you know, but um, the incidence of, of bad things happening to children nowadays is so low, but yet people are so afraid of it. And I was talking to my mom and she was like, well, that's because anytime something bad happens, everybody in the United States knows about it mm-hmm. and we don't stop talking about it. Back then, if somebody, if something happened to a child, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. it. It wouldn't be plastered all over the news and all over your phone and and repeated over and over and over again, um, scaring the shit out of everybody. I, I think that that's kind of what this is. At the end of the day, I, I, I mean, people were evacuated, and I'm not saying it, it was a, it was a good thing, but the constant putting it up on the news, saying, "Look at this terrible, terrible thing that happened," over and over again, and and kind of inundating people with it is not really productive. Yeah. So the so it's possible, we don't know yet, but it's possible that more hot boxes would have detected it mm-hmm. and it could have maybe made it so that the derailment never happened and right. the explosion never happened and all this stuff. But it's possible that if you install these things every 10 miles everywhere, your your hit rate like how many times that equipment actually successfully detects a problem goes from, you know, 0.000% to 0.000% because now you just have so many of these devices and it's so rare that the problem happens, right? Yeah. That you've spent a billion dollars installing this stuff everywhere and maybe you'll catch the next one, but maybe you won't, right? Because maybe it fails, maybe it somehow failed in like a three-mile stretch, mm-hmm. right? So a 10-mile gap wouldn't have caught it anyway, you would have needed a two mile gap, right? So now you've thrown $10 billion at it to install all these things that almost never <laughs> detect anything, you know? So there's, there's only so safe you can make any system. And I get that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to. Well, there's definitely things that I think that could be done even with the existing infrastructure. Um, so for example, um, I don't know if the railroads have been like um, hesitant to adopt anything that has to do with AI learning, but um, I, I know that uh, our company, the Union Pacific, is actually starting to get into that. I, I think that this is kind of an anomaly in in the sense that you know you've had let's say they were this was their fiftieth mile and they've passed four or five of these. Let's and and. You know, we've only talked about these three, and the first one seemed like it was pretty close to normal, right? And then the second one that was 10 miles later, you get this big spike in it. Mm-hmm. 
if you see such a big spike, why wouldn't that set off? Why can't we set the system up to give a warning um, to at least slow the train down? Um, In my ignorance, I would think that coasting to a stop is safer than emergency braking. Yeah. Two miles of train. They did not emergency brake. Oh, they didn't? No, they did not. They were the NTSB um, report. Uh, I believe did say that uh, they were in a braking application, but it was a standard braking application. They they weren't braking because they got the message from the hotbox detector. They were already in the in in the process of a standard slowing break down act, yeah. over time, right situation. And and then they got that message, um, and I think they just continued with the braking application. Um, oh, so when they got the alarm, they didn't change anything. As far as I know, they didn't. I, I, because they thought that was the safest thing to do. And these trains are two miles long, and you, you can't – you don't know what the hell's happening a mile back. <laughs> right. Like the guys in the front have no way of knowing. Yeah. No way of knowing what's happening back there. Yeah. And and the other thing is too, you know, like I, I, I just got a new truck. You have a truck that's fairly new. The The amount of sensors that's on – a truck or vehicle nowadays, I I find it hard to believe that on a critical vehicle like this, like something that could literally explode if it gets too hot, that we don't have any type of sensors to prevent stuff like this on an individual car. Yeah, like you wouldn't need anything roadside. Yeah. If you had them on the cars. Right. And I don't know the exact price of, of a hot box detector. Um, but I think they're around the two hundred to three hundred thousand dollar range for one. Yeah, holy so, shit! I know. Well, they have to be durable. They have to be able to endure the rain. They have to um uh have transducers on them and accurate enough equipment to determine because it knows which wheel that it's reading that's too hot. Oh, it's counting them. It's yeah, like it, oh it, crap! It, it's wheel seventy eight on the left. Right. It, exactly. That's what it does. It's it tells you it's. It's on the north rail, the south rail, the east rail, the west. And, you know, it's counting them as they go by. And plus they have, I mean, it's a, it has to be able to determine the temperature of a train that's going by at excess of 100 miles per hour if it's a passenger train. Yeah. Well, so I, I figured it was dumber than that. I figured if it detected any wheel over 140, it's like, hey, something's wrong somewhere. You figure it out. Yeah. But the point is to stop, right? The point is to not keep cranking at 70 miles an hour. Yeah, and and it is to kind of point them in the right direction because maybe maybe something's you know two hundred degrees above ambient and it tells them and if it didn't tell them where to look, maybe by the time they have walked, yeah, it's <laughs> to not, where it is, it's, it's not, not a fire anymore. Yeah, it's not even smoking. Maybe it's raining outside or whatever, and it's not even noted. So like they need to, at any rate, those things are kind of expensive. Um, How do they do that if they got a two mile long train? And they need to visually inspect it. They just jog back and forth. <laughs> well, they walk on the on the gravel. They walk. Yeah, I mean, they have to. I, I mean, some places actually have like service vehicles around them. You know, like they may pay for a shuttle at certain spots that are like crew drop offs. But I mean, that's not going to be at any random place next to a hot box detector that goes off. Sure. They just have to go and. Um, I mean, you got to do a quick walk around. That's a four mile walk. Yeah, if it was the very last train. <laughs> well, you'd, you'd have to walk the whole train anyway, right? On a two-mile yeah. train. And, yeah. 
So unless you got an engine in the back and you can split the difference and meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah, and I think they do actually. Um, uh, you, you know, they might like drop somebody off and then, you know, drive the train forward. Oh, past it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, if they don't think there's an issue doing that. And those those heat guns aren't expensive. Like you can just, you know, for yeah. 600 bucks, you can get a good visualizer and thermal, thermal yeah. visualizer. Well, it's just surprising to me that with with all the technology that we have, we can't put a sensor on an axle that tells you the bearing's getting too hot. Like on- I'm, a, I'm a data guy. So in my universe, you know, it's all fiber optic and it's all, you know, yeah. smart. But that all that equipment is delicate. You know, it's all yeah. bullshit electronics that trains are mostly beat the shit out of steel. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I mean, they're hardcore. They're <laughs> tough. They got to be tough, you know? Yeah. So in all that toughness, you know, sensitive electronic equipment, the failure rate on that would be huge, I assume. Yeah, well, that's, keep cutting it accidentally or whatever. Well, they ha- yeah, they, they have to be robust. They have to work, uh, you know, if you put it like in the desert in Texas, out in the beating sun all day, every day. And it also has to work uh, in Chicago and when they get two feet of snow and up in Utah when it gets five feet of snow and it has to work in the down the Southern part of Missouri, when they get an ice storm or something, you know, like it Mm -hmm. has to work everywhere all year round. Plus you're rebuilding the trains all the time. Right. So having a little fiddly fiber optic connector (laughs) on that huge steel clamp, you know, (laughs) those are two very different modes. Plus the human's not doing it anyway. Right. They, they go to the hump station and the, they just roll it and it crashes into the next one, and that's how they build oh, the trains yeah, like out a, at the hump station. Yeah, like a hump yard. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're not, you know, that's a gravity slamming. That's not a. Yeah. <laughs> that's not somebody in there going. Let me just tighten these little. Well, some of them are actually built from train movements. You have to have the right situation for a hump yard, and they're kind of pretty expensive to build. I think, but usually in really high volume areas where you have to build really large trains. You know, we just build this. Just buy a bunch of property and build a big hump yard. But either either way, I mean, it having them. I mean, it's easy for somebody to say, "Well, yeah, just put them every five miles." Well, that's that's a lot of money. Six hundred k is that what you said? Oh, I think it's about it's it's around maybe two hundred to two hundred fifty k. Yeah, I know it's a lot of money, and that's just a single track one. Yeah, how many miles of track do you have? Uh, I think the Union Pacific has like thirty two thousand miles of mainline track. So you need. One on both sides. So 32,000 miles, if you were going to do it every 10 miles, it'd be, yeah. be 3,200 units times two because you need oh, one no. on each side, right? So 6,400. No, it's just one. It's about it's about 250,000 for a single hotbox detector, which would do two rails. Oh, it can see both sides of the... Well, there's a, I think there's a transducer on one side and then there's like the camera on the other. Oh, it's a set that yeah. goes under the... Yeah. As one unit. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it usually has like its own little house, a little cabin that it operates out of um, with the equipment plus some battery backup. And blah, Let me blah, do blah. that math again. Well, how many miles of track you got? I think it's 32,000. So. Okay. So 32,000 miles of track. So you're going to do it every 10,000 miles, right? So that's 3,200 units you need. So if you need 3,200 units at a quarter million a pop. Yeah. Well, I think we have them about every 10 miles anyway. So in order to place them, you'd have to find, like this instance, where we need one, 
<laughs> it's and so and, and this is where it gets tricky, right? So you know, I say like the cabin to maybe two hundred fifty thousand dollars, right? What if you're like way out in southwest Texas in the like next to the Mexico border? That's almost a billion dollars. That's eight hundred million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, if you just for those things to install them once and then they fail periodically. So you got to keep replacing them every five years. And then that would be a billion dollars every five years. Yeah. And that would be one every 10 miles. 10 miles. Yeah. And, and the, it would be really expensive just for the one problem. That's just the temperature problem. Right. Just axle temperature. That's all it's helping with. So there's certainly ways that you could, they could deal with, they could enforce more periodic maintenance. You know, they could, um, well, if it's not happening, but who knows? Like, even with the best maintenance, shit fails sometimes. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, planes, you can have perfect maintenance record and a freak thing will happen. Yeah. And it takes them three years to figure out that there were micro, microscopic, um, like in the fan blades of a turbine jet engine, you know? Oh, yeah. Some of the, the I don't remember any of the case numbers, but I watch all these videos and they had <laughs> microscopic fractures that you couldn't detect with the standard pass they do during during manufacturing, which is still sonar analysis of every single blade in every single, you know, every single fin of every single blade, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it was only with deeper inspection than that that the NTSB finally figured out that these blades failed due to microfracturing, yeah. you know, which you, you can't do. I mean, you just can't. There's no way. Right. Yeah. If if that's the safety standard you want to hold planes to, none of us will ever fly again. Yeah. Never, because it's just not practical. Yeah. Well, millionaires. I mean, you know, if you want to drop bazillions of dollars, but no regular person would ever fly again. Right. Because you couldn't afford the maintenance. There are some things though that um, maybe were questionable uh, from whatever organization, whether or not they wanted to pay for it, but they were kind of forced to you know, do it like, uh, like airplanes, commercial airplanes. I think it was up until like the eighties or something. They used to just blow up midair on not like an extreme, like it didn't happen. Like we didn't have planes falling out of the sky, but what would happen is, is that uh, they couldn't get, if, if the oxygen levels in the gas tanks got too high, I mean, that's obviously going to be explosive, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So what they have today is actually something in fuel tanks that remove the oxygen from the system so it can't happen anymore. And they knew that this stuff uh, was out there to remove the oxygen, but a lot of the airplane companies didn't want to pay to put these into their airplanes because, it, I mean, it's not cheap. Um, but they were kind of ultimately forced to do it. And then, you know, the the problem basically went away. I, th- I think, um, yeah, the, the, there's only so much you can do. Right? Yeah. So whether this rail company is doing enough or not, I have no idea. Right. So like if the maintenance wasn't happening, that's bad. Uh, so we'll wait for the NTSB report to say, but I don't know. It's just, it's amazing to me that as a, as a train operator, I could be doing my job the same way I've been doing it for 20 years. And then, one day I've done nothing wrong and 
a, a disaster like happened yeah. in Ohio happens. I mean, and I didn't even know it happened. Like the, the guys who were driving the train had no idea there was a problem. Yeah. Until the train came to a stop. And then somebody like told them that there was a fire back there or something. Didn't they? <laughs> I think somebody, that's what I read somewhere. Yeah. They, is that the, the guys running the train had no idea there was even a problem. Right. But that's crazy to me. Like, I mean, it is. Um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm glad they weren't hurt, by the way. Like, nobody was immediately injured in the immediate wreckage. Right. Which is amazing, given the scope of the disaster. But So that's great. But, yeah, what what a totally different job that is than my job. I can't imagine being, like, a bridge designer or engineer or something. And you did all this work and you did all this math. And then 25 years later, the skyscraper falls over because you made a rounding error. Yeah. Or a higher regency. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, they, well, that one, they installed it wrong. The, the, actually, the, well, it was a combination of they shouldn't have approved the change to the plan and the, the installers didn't do the misinterpreted the approval, approved change to the, Design di- right. diagrams of both. But think about all the people in that chain of events that thought that they were doing the right thing. Yeah. It was just another day at work for them. Yeah. I mean, there was a select few individuals that made the wrong choice that was pretty catastrophic. But Oh, yeah. God, that was a nightmare to you. All right. Well, I can't think of any more train questions that I had for you. Yeah. Did you well, have any other train things you wanted to tell me? No. No. I mean, I think... uh It'll be interesting to see, you know, if people kind of get the the safetyism bug, you know, like where they think, oh, any price, you know, to pay to make things just a little bit more safer. The two hundred fifty thousand is probably just the unit in the house, you know, that's there. But you know, if you think about the added costs of being in Southwest Texas next to the border, you know, maybe there's not even power out there. So now we got to install like a huge solar location out there or pay to get commercial power all the way out there to these remote locations mm-hmm. every 10 miles. It, it could be a pretty expensive thing if that's what people think is the right answer is to just have more hot box detectors. Well, the closest power plant to you and I is coal fire. They're talking about switching it to gas in 2027, but mm-hmm. they're not even sure they're doing that. So anyway, the electricity we're using right now to run your fancy microphones is <laughs> coal fire electricity, yeah. not the whole grid, but, the closest generator we have is coal. So that coal all got there by train. <laughs> yeah. You know, did ask people if they want their electric bills to double for coal to be transported more safely so that you can put another 20,000 hotbox detectors on the tracks. Yeah. And they'll say no. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So shut up. You know, yeah. if you don't want your electricity to be more expensive, it's currently generated with coal. And if you're not willing to pay any more, then there's only so much the company can do. And again, I'm not saying the company is doing enough because I don't know. Maybe they're doing a great job. Maybe they're criminally negligent. I have no idea. Yeah, and we won't but, know until the final report comes out. And there's there's only – yeah, but, but in all scenarios of safety, there's always you know a diminishing return on investment. Yeah, so. yeah the water can always be cleaner, I guess. <laughs> Other than that, I, I mean, I don't really have anything else to say about it. I think it, it's weird. It's it's funny to me how people sometimes can be really super interested in railroad stuff. And and somebody like me that goes to do it every day, I'm just like, uh, 
it'll be in the back of my mind. I have this thing going like, I wonder if people are going to be interested in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. I'm trying to keep all my listeners away. Our listeners for two years now, this has been mostly your fault. This podcast. Oh yeah, that could be it. I I am pretty boring. Are you pulling your weight? Um, I know it, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, we never did have that, uh, that pot, the, the podcast about the Joe Rogan episode. Oh God. (laughs) It's trying to drag me into a podcast that made me really mad. Yeah. I'll have to go back through my notes on that so I can, you know, be super informed like I was with this episode. Yeah. Well, I'm, I don't think there's really much to know. I think the NTSB report is only four pages long. I mean, there's not. Oh, maybe I did read the whole thing then. I thought I thought I went through the first five pages trying to understand it. Yeah, yeah. And then, really and then gave up. I didn't realize that I might have been through it all. Yeah, it's only three and a, three and three quarters of a page with pretty big type. Because I didn't know exactly what they were saying because I'm not in the rail industry, so I don't, you know, parts of it I'm like, okay. Dangerous shit. Got it. Stuff went wrong. Got it. You're saying no specific thing is obviously very wrong so far? Yeah. I mean, that's just it, too. I mean, sometimes shit, shit happens. I guess the real question is, do you want it to happen mostly on some remote tracks, or do you want it to happen? Well, the advantage of it being on the interstate, right, is it would be a single car, not 20, that all burst into flames simultaneously, probably. The downside being that they might have killed 17 families and minivans along the way. Pretty much. So... Yeah, it, it might not have been easy, easy as easy to contain it. I think in this particular case, I mean, it burned for three days. I'm not sure it was easy to contain. <laughs> well, and they had to release; they had a power release one of them, right? Right. I guess my point is, is that if it was like a semi truck, would they have been able to get the right people out there to take care of it in the most safe way? So, in this particular case, you know, the railroads have a response team that knows how to handle dangerous stuff. Mm. In this particular case. There was no leakage, but the cars got were getting hotter and hotter. So they, because they had gotten hot enough, I think that it just started a chemical reaction that they were worried was going to blow the cars up. Mm-hmm. So they dug out, they dug a trench and emptied the contain the containment the uh, the containers into this ditch to let it just burn off naturally instead of blow blow up <laughs> mm-hmm. you know maybe maybe somebody would have known how to respond to that at if it, if it happened to a a semi truck between Blair and Omaha <laughs> they would have had the right people to show up to to know to do that or maybe they wouldn't have gotten there in time either you know maybe what like what if it happened to a semi truck you know right outside of a elementary school mm. Yeah, if you have to choose between controlled burn and uncontrolled burn, you're probably better off with a controlled yeah. burn. If those are your only two choices, right? And I'm no chemist, so I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I mean, either. I, I can't really speak about that, but it seemed like nobody was permanently injured, and it was contained, and they did what they were supposed to do. I mean, I guess that's why we have emergency responders. All right. Well, as you know, safety is my number one concern. <laughs> so I'm going to go suck vape into my lungs <laughs> because I don't want to be chemically contaminated. Yeah. I don't blame by anything. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever worry? Do you ever see those TikToks where somebody's like, um, I mean, they're, they, they're like, have that thing in their throat and they're 
They're just like, oh, I vape for 15 years or whatever. Do you ever see those? They vape for 15 years? Or something like that. How long has vaping not even been a thing for 15 years? I don't know anything about it, but I just see the TikToks where somebody's like really fucked up. Oh, from vaping only or from? Well, that's what they say in the the TikTok. I I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, know, but they make it It's possible. It's worse. It's possible that longitudinal studies 30 years from now will prove that I should have, I would have been better off with cigarettes. It's possible. Oh, that, that can't be, I don't think right? It's likely. But. There's no way. Uh, see, to me, and that's so when I watch those TikToks, I think to myself, well, what's the alternative? Well, smoking or just quitting altogether. Sometimes people can't do one of those. Yeah, you can do patches and gum and all kinds of. If yeah. you can't kick nicotine, but yeah, it, it's possible. But but as far as I can tell, vaping's better. But I should also quit because it's fucking stupid and expensive. <laughs> it's dumb. Is it? How much is it? Uh, it's gotten a lot cheaper and I buy in bulk. So it's actually <laughs> way cheaper than I think it's way cheaper than tobacco. Do they sell it at Costco or something? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no big box store. They stuff. wouldn't sell anything dangerous at Costco. They sell That's, alcohol. Yeah. That was the joke I was about to make. Okay. They would only, they only sell gallon drums of whiskey <laughs> and you can't possibly hurt yourself on whiskey. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, I was walking through that aisle not too long ago, and I saw some expensive stuff at Costco. Oh, dude, they had a case of Shinerbach, which I just bought. I'm really excited oh, about that, that. Shinerbach beer bottles. Is that good stuff? I like Shinerbach, yeah. I've never it's made in Texas. I, w- I was in the town in Texas, Shiner, Texas. <laughs> was I actually there? No. I was, okay. I was in a suburb of Dallas Fort Worth <laughs> but they were telling me about oh yeah Shiner's over here or whatever and they'd been there I think is the story I was hearing anyway and I'm like wow this is a really good beer and they made fun of me because that's the local crap that nobody will drink oh. and then I found it at High V in Omaha Nebraska and I'm like holy shit they have Shinerbach and I love huh. it yeah it's really good hmm. it's not my favorite beer of all time but it's really good so yeah I got a case of that so good times All right. Well, thanks, Chris. Oh, uh, one more thing. I set up a Google Voice phone number, which you know. So I'm going to put in this episode that phone number, unless you don't want me to. I don't care. And then maybe we'll get hate voicemail. Yeah. And people can yell at us for being ignoramuses. And before I forget, because I've forgotten every time I've seen you, when you were taking the stuff, something fell out of the back of your truck. The cocaine? (laughs) It was like a, a milk crate. Oh, so, some stuff that fell out the back of your truck. And I picked it up and stuck it in my truck. Oh, on Sunday? Yeah, on Sunday. When you when were I driving. pulled up downtown, they said my tailgate was open. It was. And I, my mind was blown. So I pulled out of the neighborhood oh with the tailgate God. down. Is I, that what I, I did? I should have said something to you because I saw you drive by and I, I was like, oh, his tailgate's down. He called must... me. <laughs> well, I just thought I thought you did it on purpose. No, I did not. <laughs> I did not drive oh, up man. and down the hills of Ponca Hills with the tailgate down. I'm sorry. I should have. I should have known about. I thought you just did it on purpose. I was like, oh, he 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 needed some space. These tailgates <laughs> down. And me and Kelly went somewhere, and we made a left, and we're like, oh shit, there's a milk crate from. I don't think he meant to have his tailgate. Well, was down. it right in front of the house here? Or was it like a mile down the road? Uh, I was at the end of the road. Son of a bitch, really? Yeah. So you must have made a left out out of here. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was it was just off to the right. Probably dropping donations all the way to downtown. Well, well, I got some donations for you. Plus, <laughs> plus your milk crate, which is probably what you really want. <laughs> I, I, I don't to... know. Is there any good stuff in there? I'll take it. <laughs> <sighs> good all times. right. Thanks, Chris. Yep. 
Bye, listeners. And another quick reminder, if you want to call into the show, feel free. 402-577-0117.